We're continuing our sermon series through selected parables this summer. Before we read our parable this morning from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, let us turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now come to your holy word, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Be pleased this day to reveal yourself to us that we might come out of our sin and into the wonders of your love. For we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our passage comes from the, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Dearly beloved, hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. This fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When this fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know, to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's do a quick survey. How many of you have ever been hurt or offended in some way by someone else? Let's see a show of hands. All right. Now, how many of you have ever offended or hurt someone else in some way? Show of hands. So. We now see clearly why this parable is so important. All of us have at some point needed to extend forgiveness to someone else and have needed to be forgiven by someone else. 
offense caused by our sin is our predicament. It is inevitable that we will be hurt by someone else and will hurt someone else at some point in our lives due to our fallen nature. And this is probably not a rare occurrence in our lives if we are interacting with others on any, in any regularity. We offend and are offended, more than likely on a daily basis. And so forgiveness will be needed. But forgiveness is not so natural for us, is it? Just because hurt is inevitable doesn't mean that forgiveness is inevitable. Someone once said, we are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. And we are most like God when we forgive. And herein lies the problem. Offense, sin against one another is universal, but forgiveness is not. If we are going to do what comes most natural to us, then we will seek revenge. We will seek to do what we determine to be justice. So I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you find forgiveness to be difficult. I am fairly confident that we can acknowledge the common difficulty we have in forgiving others and if we are being honest with ourselves at being forgiven ourselves. So this parable provides a poignant story about being forgiven and also in light of this forgiveness of extending forgiveness to others. It's a reminder to us of the gospel's message of the amazing forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ. But it's also a reminder to us of the gospel's call for forgiveness. Indeed, it is not merely a call, but a command that our Lord Jesus gives to us. And this parable pushes us to our limits and perhaps beyond because Jesus tells us here that we aren't just to forgive once or twice. Look at the conversation that leads to the parable. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, having a little context for Peter's questions is important here. If we look at the scriptural context in Matthew's gospel, our passage this morning comes in a larger section of Jesus' teachings that begins at the beginning of the 18th chapter. In immediately preceding Peter's questions, we find Jesus' teachings on how to approach a brother who has sinned against you. It is the classic passage on church discipline. Jesus tells his disciples in that passage to confront the brother who is sinning. Confront the brother personally and privately. If he refuses to listen, then one or two more go with you and speak to him. If he still refuses to listen, bring the matter before the church. If he still refuses to listen, Jesus says to treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, treat him as an unbeliever, for this is how he is behaving. And so, remove him from the fellowship of the church. 
This instruction to confront a sinner and to potentially dismiss this individual from the fellowship of the church can seem to our 21st century Western ears to be rather harsh. We live in a world where one of the highest held moral maxims is to never, never judge anyone else's behavior. It is hateful to judge another's behavior to be sinful, we are told. But the point here is that church discipline is for the sake of fellowship. In order for true fellowship to exist in the church, there must be peace and purity and unity within the body of Christ. None of these things exist alongside unrepentant sin. So confrontation of the sinner is ultimately for the purpose of restoring the sinner to true fellowship by way of repentance and reconciliation. It isn't loving then to ignore sin. It is only pretending to love to ignore offense within the church. We shouldn't miss though, we shouldn't miss though that the conversation now moves on to forgiveness. In some conservative Christian circles, there's no shortage of calling out sin. But Jesus' last word here is not confrontation. It's not confrontation, and his last word is not excommunication. Jesus' last word in this section of teaching is forgiveness. And Peter presents him with the perfect opportunity to address this most important gospel principle. Now, it's very easy to be hard on Peter here. Peter is often quick to speak and consequently just as quick to put his foot in his mouth. But let's be careful about jumping on Peter's case too hastily here. There is, I think, real virtue in his questions. For they seem to reveal a desire to be a frequently forgiving person. Even as he misreads the mind of Christ in this case, he seems to be demonstrating that he understands that it is in the spirit of Jesus Christ, his master, to be forgiving, and that therefore he has an obligation as a disciple of Jesus to forgive. This is what he seems to be getting at in his questions. You see, there was actually a debate among the rabbis of the time about this very question of how many times one is required to forgive an offender. And it was the commonly held belief that the requirement was to forgive three times. This number might come from the prophet Amos, who repeatedly spoke God's message of judgment to Israel's neighbors and to Israel herself, saying, for three transgressions, And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So, if God only forgives three times, but not a fourth, then the faithful should imitate God and do likewise. So, do you see what Peter has done here then? He's taken the commonly held requirement to forgive three times and more than doubled it, which seems more than charitable, right? Are you with me? It's like taking, for instance, the commonly held requirement to tithe and ramping it up a bit. How much am I supposed to tithe? Well, at least 10% of my income. Well, then I'll give 21% of my income. Excellent. No one 
with the exception of perhaps your accountant, would tell you you are wrong for being a more generous and charitable person. <laughs> so Peter is probably expecting Jesus to respond, very good, Peter, seven times would show an abundance of forgiveness. And if we're being honest with ourselves, in our minds, forgiving seven times would show an abundance of forgiveness. For how many of us have done well at forgiving someone the seven times as Peter has suggested? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice though, right? Don't be hard on Peter then. And this is where the lesson on forgiveness begins with Jesus' disciples. Jesus responds to Peter saying, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now don't misinterpret the number 77 to be literal. We aren't supposed to be keeping track of how many times we have forgiven someone, and we aren't supposed to stop forgiving them once they have sinned against us for the 78th time. 77 is a significant number. It goes all the way back to Genesis 4, where Cain kills his brother Abel. Cain is henceforth sentenced to be a fugitive and a wanderer by God, but Cain fears that he will be killed because others will dread him. So God promises that sevenfold vengeance will come upon anyone who kills him. Now fast forward a few generations to Lamech, who proudly proclaims in Genesis 4, verses 23 and 24, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech wasn't satisfied with sevenfold vengeance. What he's boasting of here is that the vengeance he dishes out will be completely disproportionate to the crime committed against him. Someone wounds him in a small way, so he responds by killing the man. And God's word reveals two things here. First, 77 is a number that represents extravagant excess. Second, Cain's line became dominated by those not only who sought vengeance, but who were excessively vengeful and therefore had no regard to the life of others. Jesus, though, Jesus, though, has come to overturn the spirit of vengeance and usher in a kingdom of love in peace and forbearance. Jesus tells this parable to reveal that the unlimited revenge of man has given way to an unlimited forgiveness of God in himself. And because this is what is demonstrated for us by God in Jesus Christ, this is the ethic given to the followers of Jesus. Forgive an unlimited number of times for this is what has been done for you. So let's now look at the parable itself. It basically has two acts. The first act is of a king who is settling accounts with his servants. One servant is brought before him with a debt of 10,000 talents. 
Now, we've had parables that have discussed denarii in the past few weeks, and Pastor John explained that a denarius is roughly equivalent to a day's wage. Well, a talent is roughly equivalent to 6,000 denarii. Do the math. This guy owes 60 million denarii. And we could try at this point to figure out what the equivalent amount might be for today by adjusting for inflation and the value of gold, which is probably what a talent would have been based upon. What we would come up with would be a figure anywhere between $6 billion to around $3 trillion, $600 billion. You with me? The point here isn't to figure out the exact amount. We should immediately get the point, which is that this is an astronomical sum, even for us who hear of our government passing bills right now that are in the trillions of dollars. We probably can't get our heads around our nation spending or owing that much money in what it will take for us as an entire nation to pay that debt down. Try then to imagine an individual owing that much money. Saying that someone owes 10,000 talents is like saying someone owes zillions of dollars. It's a million days worth of wages. That's over 160 thousand years worth of work unending. Are you with me? This servant, along with his whole family then, are sentenced to be sold as slaves to repay the debt. The reality is, though, that there is no way that this debt can ever be repaid. And Jesus, through the parable, intends for us to feel the weight. He intends for us to feel the weight of this debt. Who is this man after all? Who is this man who has accrued such a ridiculously large debt to his king? I, I am this man. You are this man. This is the unmistakable point of the parable. And this is the nature of our debt before our King, God Almighty. We have all, every one of us, amassed an unpayable, inconceivable debt before God on account of our sin. Jesus' point here is meant to take the wind right out of our sails at any illusion that we stand before God as pretty good people with only a few inconsequential faults, allowing us somehow to slip past God's all-seeing gaze or reasonably work off our debt by our own efforts. Nope. Our sins are significant and we don't have the means necessary to set things right. So this parable presents us with the ugly truth about ourselves. It gives us, in a very undeniable way, the uncomfortable reality of just how bad we really are. 
not only deeply indebted, but absolutely sunk. If we stand before God on our own merits, we are all doomed. The result is judgment. Just judgment. And since he could not pay, says verse 25, the verdict comes down. But an unexpected unexpected twist occurs. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. In verse 27 states, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. In response to a humble pleading, the king relents. The king's heart is moved, not because the man will actually be able to pay back this debt, but out of sheer graciousness. And he not only releases him from his sentence, but he forgives his debt. It's remarkable. The servant had asked for patience and opportunity to repay the debt, but he receives immeasurably more. He receives a forgiveness he had not dared request. And we should recognize what Jesus is preaching here. Forgiveness. The forgiveness of the gospel. Forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Pastor John noted a few weeks ago, debt does not just disappear. It is forgiven. If it is forgiven, then it means it has been absorbed by the one to whom it is owed. By God's grace, he has absorbed our insurmountable debt. How? By the blood of his very own beloved son. A debt this deep requires a forgiveness of equal depth. And we find that forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid the penalty of our sin in his death on the cross. As Romans 3 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Can we begin to imagine the weight of the sin that Jesus assumes for us on the cross? We are all zillion dollar debtors, each one. And he has taken the weight of all of our sins on himself on the cross that we might be set free from bondage. So we come before God begging for mercy And he gives us more than we could ever ask. He gives us grace. And this is the end of act one, but it's not the end of the parable. What happens next? The man forgiven of his zillion dollar debt goes out and lives a life in grateful response to what this gracious king has done for him. Hardly verses 28 and following. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, before we discuss the first servant's actions, we don't want to downplay the extent of what is owed to this servant. Even figuring 
the equivalent of 100 days wages for someone who is working minimum wage today still amounts to a considerable sum of money, thousands of dollars. So Jesus does not minimize as insignificant the offense that is faced by way of other sins. Indeed, the the hurt that we have experienced at the hands of others is deep. And the reality is it isn't the stranger who cuts you off in traffic or who skips us in line at the grocery store. Those aren't the ones who we have the most difficulty forgiving. It isn't even our boss who takes advantage of us or our coworker who blames us for his failure. No, no, no. For many of us, it is those who are closest to us, those who are supposed to love us, who repeatedly hurt us. It's a fellow believer who gossips behind our back. It's a friend who is never there when we need her. It's a family member whose words or actions cut us to the deepest part of who we are and cause wounds that are the hardest to heal. Unfortunately, it is they who are the ones who we begin justifying our withholding of forgiveness because it is they who are in a position to repeatedly mistreat us. And so friendships are destroyed, church fellowship is fractured, families are broken, all on account of a lack of forgiveness. But we're meant to hear in the second man's plea an echo of the first man's plea before the king. And so to make the connection about how we are to relate to others in the same way that God has loved us, we are to love others. There should be for those of us who have experienced forgiveness in Jesus Christ an inherent connection between the overwhelming and undeserved forgiveness granted to us by God and our forgiveness of others. If God is not holding our sins against us, then neither should we hold our sins of others against them, regardless of the offense. And even though Jesus does not minimize the offense that we experience by way of others, there is still enormous discrepancy between the depth of our sin against God and the depth of our sin against others. What is, after all, a few thousand dollars owed to us when we owe zillions of dollars to the king of kings? There is nothing, nothing, therefore, that anyone could do to us that would come close to comparing to our sin for which our Lord hung on the cross for us. And this perspective on our sin and God's love for us in Jesus Christ should move us to love others in the same way. That doesn't mean that forgiveness comes easily, but it does mean that we are called to respond to the forgiveness offered to us in Jesus Christ by forgiving others. This is the command given by Jesus in this parable. Now, that isn't to say that we make it easy for the offender to hurt us again. Jesus, as one pastor stated, calls us to be foot washers, not doormats. But it does imply that those who have received forgiveness in Jesus Christ will be transformed by that forgiveness. And Jesus stresses in the Gospels that our willingness to forgive is key evidence of a true and saving faith because it is evidence of a changed heart, a transformed heart. 
This is what the kindness of God shown to us in Jesus Christ does when we place our faith in him. It has a transformative effect. It has a transformative effect because we are not only forgiven of our enormous debt before the Lord and set free in him, but because we're also given a new nature, the nature of Jesus Christ himself. It is God's own forgiving nature. And it is God who by the power of the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ and fills us with his Holy Spirit, producing in us godly fruits, love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice that bitterness of heart, quickness to anger, hatred, vengeance are not listed among the fruits of the Spirit. Rather, what Scripture gives us is a list of virtues of one who has been given new eyes to see others as those created in God's image, worthy of love of one who's been given a desire to put to death the urge of getting even or worse, getting one up. Because there's confidence in God's forgiveness and God's promise to set all things right. Of one who has been given delight in God and in obeying God, which includes the joy of forgiving an offense. Of one whose perspective has been shaped to understand the depth of his own sin against God and so understands the relative smallness of other sins against him. Of one who's given a will then to forbear others' offenses because of the greatness of God's forbearance of his own offenses. And even as this new nature might not manifest itself all at once, as one matures in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of others should be a characteristic that is increasingly evident in his or her life. And because forgiveness does not come easily for us who have been offended by others in very, very deep and hurtful ways, it requires us to lean heavily on the power of God in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It requires time spent meditating on God's great love for us in Jesus Christ. It requires time spent in prayer asking God that by his grace and his mercy, he might help us to forgive, that he might help us to overcome our sinful impulses to get the pound of flesh we feel we deserve, that he might give us self-control and forbearance, and that he might fill us with his love and kindness but there's also a warning here for those for whom forgiveness of others is not present the point in act two of this parable is made with great clarity the zillion dollar forgiveness given to the first servant did not produce in him a zillion dollar mercy and this time the first servant is not let off the hook What began as a beautiful story of forgiveness ends not in reconciliation and redemption, but in judgment. After some of the king's servants witnessed the first servant's unforgiving actions, they, in sadness, and this is our proper response to sin in the community, go and inform the king who immediately calls to himself the man whom he has previously extended his grace. But this is a very different interaction than the first. Now the servant is called wicked. Interesting that the man was not called wicked when he came the first time with a debt of 10,000 talents, but now he is. 
This, I believe, tells us something of God's attitude toward those who have a hard and unforgiving heart. And the king tells him that because his act of mercy toward the man did not result in the man being merciful to others, he would now be sentenced to prison until he should pay all of his debt. Did you hear that? Is that possible? Is it possible he would pay back all of his debt? Of course not. And that is the point, dearly beloved. There is eternal punishment for the unforgiving servant. So we shouldn't miss that this parable presents us with a truth of the gospel that might be very hard for us to swallow. After presenting us with the amazing reality of God's forgiveness, it calls us to a life of faith in which unlimited forgiveness is offered by us. But to those who show no mercy, no mercy will be shown. As Paul tells the church in Rome, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. But this is obviously not the case for the first servant in the parable. And therefore, it reveals in him a lack of appreciation for that forgiveness that has been extended to him. He either doesn't recognize or understand the depth of his own guilt, thus putting into perspective the debt owed to him, or he is ungrateful for what the king has done for him, or perhaps both. And so we must hear at this point Paul's word in his letter to the Romans. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is exactly what Jesus warns his listeners of here in this parable. Jesus concludes this parable with this comment. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, this is not to suggest that we can somehow lose our salvation if we fail to forgive. But rather, as it has been said, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. In other words, the faith we possess profess, if it is true, will be demonstrated in our lives, revealing that it isn't merely an empty profession, but is something that we also indeed possess. And Jesus reveals here that God does not take lightly the one who fails to show mercy and offer forgiveness. Because our salvation in Christ, if it is true, should be producing in us mercy toward others. Even as God's grace comes to us freely, unconditionally, without required conditions, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This does not mean that there are not expected consequences of God's grace in our lives. A change of heart reveals that God's grace has truly taken hold of us. <clears throat> and we're reminded again and again of the importance of forgiveness in a believer's life in the Gospels. As Jesus is recorded saying in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. 
But we don't just find it in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. We find it in each and every chapter of the Sermon on the Mount in which we have the ethics of the redeemed people of God in Jesus Christ. It's there in Jesus' teaching on anger and retaliation. It's there in his teaching on how we pray using the Lord's Prayer and his comments following that prayer. It's there in his teaching on judging others. And so if we can assess the importance of forgiveness in a believer's life by the frequency of Jesus' teaching on this subject, then we might conclude that one of the most heinous sins of all is a refusal to forgive. So dearly beloved, of what importance is it to you? Do we feel the sting when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we also have been for, as we also have forgiven our debtors? Do we earnestly seek to forgive others? Do we understand our own guilt before the Lord? If we only see ourselves as sinning a little, then we will probably only be able to forgive a little. Remember what the Lord teaches. He who is forgiven little loves little. Are we grateful then for the Lord's forgiveness of us? And do we seek the Lord's guidance and the Lord's help to forgive others? Dearly beloved, I pray this community at Covenant Presbyterian Church would be one that does not dismiss sin, but I also pray that the hallmark of this community would be love for one another in the forgiveness of sins and forbearance with one another as we together grow in maturity in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Your grace, O Lord, is amazing. That you would take on human flesh and come and die for us to pay the penalty of our sin, that we might be forgiven, reconciled, redeemed. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would understand the depth of that reality and that that reality would transform us to be a community of people who love much, who forbear with one another, who are patient, who are kind, who are forgiving. Lord, transform us into the people you call us to be, for we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? 